Welcome to the podcast of Central Church. This is our latest weekly message. All right. Um, We are tonight just finishing off um, the last perspective we're doing on our passage that we've been sitting in this month which is um, from Mark 14, and it's the story of the the woman who anoints Jesus with perfume or with oil. So as as is our usual habit, we sit in a passage of Scripture for a month, and each Sunday when we're preaching, we just look at it through a different perspective in order to just gain insight, to listen to voices that are different to our own, to consider things we might not have considered before, and um, just to posture ourselves of humble readers of, of the Bible. And so on the first Sunday, Oren shared a perspective of this passage from um, looking through the lens of powerlessness and what this passage of Scripture might t- talk to us about nature of power and specifically powerlessness and if we were being perhaps a little bit more intellectual like it that that perspective that Oren brought probably sits quite aligned to liberation theology which is a kind of theology which is often looking at things from the underneath so we had that kind of perspective on the on the first Sunday last Sunday Luke looked at this passage um, from a feminist perspective. Um, It was Mother's Day. And so we looked at this passage of scripture, uh, in some ways looking at feminist theology and what that has brought to the conversation within the church. And then also allowing the women, um, allowing, that's the wrong word. (laughs) Women are not just allowed, empowering, just giving voice to the women in the church and, the reason I like, there were a couple of reasons why I asked Luke to do that on Mother's Day. Number one, so no mother actually had to do anything much on Mother's Day. That was like a, a ticking the box, make the men work on, um, on Mother's Day. But also because we have on different occasions looked at different passages of scripture uh, from a feminist or at least a female lens, but it's usually the women that are doing that. And I thought it was really important to hear the voice of a man coming from a feminist perspective because men can can and should, are invited to be feminists as well. And often you are allowed, you are, and you are allowed to speak. <laughs> um, I think that's the idea of being an ally. Like whenever we have minority groups, uh, they need to be given voices, but those groups also need allies, which are those in power who are willing to not speak on behalf of, but come alongside and empower the minority voice and also in some ways give up their voice. So so I felt like that was, um, if anyone was like, why is a man speaking on feminist theology? That's why, because we need those kinds of things. And so tonight I actually want to look at this passage um, through a Christological lens, which is just a bit of a different perspective. So I'm going to read it. Let's read it together. And then we'll, we'll dive in a little bit. So we're reading this story from Mark, although it's found in all of the Gospels. And the details do differ a little bit between Matthew and Mark are very similar. And then Luke and John have a very similar story, but the details are different. We've just chosen to sit ourselves in Mark because it, 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 we just did. Um, so here we go. Now the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away which means it was two days away from Jesus' arrest 
and three days from his crucifixion. Um, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or the people may riot. While he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you and you can help them anytime you want but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Truly I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. So this is our passage and as um, I want to I want to bring a Christological lens to this. So that that's a word. A Christolo- Christological is a word you may or may not be familiar with. Obviously, you will know the Christ in Christology, and so Christology is the study of the nature and works of Jesus Christ. Christology that's that's an intellectual term. It's it's a descriptive term that's probably used in academia. Uh, There's a couple of different branches of Christology, just to throw a few more random words at you. There's ontological Christology, which is really looking at the nature of being in Jesus, like like what was his being, what was his nature, is he human, is he God, is he, you know, all of that discussion. There's functional Christology, which really looks at the works of Jesus. And then there's soteriological Christology, Soteriology is the study of salvation, and so it's looking at the the salvic standpoints um, of Christ. How does Christ save? So these are all like academic areas of study, and Christology is kind of like a an overarching branch of this. I want to do a really quick side note about these intellectual words, and I came up with this very inept graphic as I want to just try and explain something um, I wanted the reason I want to do this is because I did not grow up with an ongoing understanding of the um, rich diverse and deep study of faith that has been going on for a very long time Um, I kind of just, I would say I grew up in a fairly anti-intellectual Christianity. That's what I would say. Um, We are all people of faith. That's the bright yellow. Um, And we, we all learn and grow and experience life and, and we, we grow in our spirituality and our understanding of Jesus. We all have access to God. That's, that's what I'm saying. We all have the ability to learn and read Scripture and to see things and learn things and perceive things and, and make sense of our world through the lens of faith. We are all people of faith. And then I think if you kind of imagine at that next sort of 
space, there are people who communicate to us things of faith. So they might be the authors of the books we read, they might be preachers or podcasts we listen to, they might be pastors, people who take knowledge that we might not know or might not have heard before and they communicate it to us. This is how we learn and grow. Like, so we have those kinds of people. And then standing sort of, you know, beyond that is the intellectual study of the things of faith, which is going on in universities all around the world by people of all different ages and backgrounds. And in this kind of thing, we have people doing PhDs and deep and interesting studies in theology and biblical studies and in linguistics, like the ancient linguistics that the Bible is written in, in archaeology and digging up the sites that our Bible talks about and trying to figure out what are these sites actually, how do they inform the history that we understand that our Bible's written in. Then we have historians that are particularly understanding the historical background of our faith. All of this intellectual stuff is going on and is undergirding the learning that's going on in the life of faith. But I grew up with a whole lot of suspicion around that intellectual stuff. And I don't, I don't know what your experience of it is. Um, well, actually, I would say that, that I grew up without any understanding. Like, that was just like, that did not exist in my knowledge until probably my mid to late 20s, I would say. And then even as I began to engage with it, there were like question marks around this kind of intellectualism of faith. Like, oh, if you study it too much, you might, you might lose your faith. Is this familiar to people? I'm saying all of this because as we in our faith community here are intentionally preaching scripture, we are drawing reasonably from that far side of learning. We're bringing ideas and understandings into the, the, our ordinary everyday community that are things that might be new to many of us, things, words we might not have heard before, perspectives we might not be familiar with, like ideas that might seem foreign, things that might feel uncomfortable to us. Because I just don't think that historically the church has done well to to filter down the amazing learning that's going on in the higher education institutions that exist. So I wanted to say all of that to acknowledge that if you like see the word Christological perspective and you think, what the hell? Don't worry about it, it's fine. But I'm, we're tr I'm trying to bring some of this stuff through to us, not to freak us out, not to make us uncomfortable, but to help undergird our learning. And so we might grow. I mean, there is, and you might have, if you were here last week, you would have heard um, Jessamy's mum, Roberta, bringing out some really recent um, study that's being done linguistically around the story of Mary and Martha, um, historically. She, she brought that into our presence. And I don't know how you felt about that. I don't even know if you understood what she said. But, but that kind of thing is where we're bringing kind of, kind of deeper stuff. We talk about liberation theology. We talk about feminist theology. We talk about all of those things. They're coming from this sort of other understanding. But we're all people of faith. Does this, this make sense? Uh, this is a very poor, like I was thinking about this this afternoon going, What's, what, is there a better way for us to understand it? And this is really poor, but it's probably the best I can do. If we were to imagine this in a medical perspective, we would say the bright yellow is we all have bodies. 
And we all have the ability to know what goes on in our bodies and to know when our bodies aren't functioning well. And we know how to eat properly and exercise. And we know all the things we should do to be a healthy body. But I'm really glad that in the middle there we have GPs who like have a fair bit more knowledge about the body than the average person and who can communicate when we need it. I'm also then incredibly happy that there are specialists that understand genetics and could do open heart surgery and all of that thing. Now, I'm a person with a body. I don't expect that I can perform open heart surgery, um, but I'm grateful for the people that do. I don't need to understand how my genetics function and how to dissect a cell in order to just be a body and to live well. And does, that, does this make sense? So I'm actually really grateful for those like in the, in, in the theological world, for those who are doing, I don't need to know or understand all of them, but I do think I'm really grateful for them and for what they bring through and for what the learning that's ongoing and current and still coming through to us because it enriches our life of faith. We don't all have to be specialists, but we don't have to be suspicious of them either. Um, we can like, we can go to them um, and, and learn. Anyway, that's a really long side note. But I do feel like I wanted to say that, to give context to, to what we're doing and to acknowledge that I'm aware that sometimes the perspectives we bring are foreign and may make you feel uncomfortable. That's, I just want to acknowledge that it's okay. It's okay that we don't know all of this stuff. It's okay that we're just people of faith trying to bumble our way along. Like when, I'm not trying to set... Um, perspectives up against our lived experience. I'm just trying to enrich us and stretch us and make us curious and humble. So anyway, in our Christological lens at looking at this, essentially all we're doing is we're, we're centering Jesus. To read this text through a Christological lens means we center Jesus and we look at what's going on Christologically in this text. And what I want to suggest to you is that what we see happening, primarily functioning in this text, beyond all the little details that we might experience, is we see Jesus being anointed. We see Jesus having oil and perfume poured over his head, running down his body as he's leading up to his time of burial. It's an anointing kind of picture that we're seeing here in the life of Jesus. Is he being anointed as king? Maybe. Is he being anointed as a high priest? Maybe. I think we see both of those functionally happening in the life of Jesus throughout our text. Hebrews talks about Jesus being the great high priest. Revelation brings the picture of Jesus being the lamb on the throne. Both of these are images that Jesus holds. And I think what we see Christologically as we look at this text is something is being revealed to us with like obvious ways, make, something is being made visible that has been invisible, but Jesus has been functioning that way all along. So I think I see Christologically, we see that this is an anointing text and that Jesus is being anointed um, for a specific purpose. So that allows us to see this text as as rich, as symbolically connected to the Old Testament, as Jesus standing in the lineage of the kings of Israel, the great high priestly thing of Israel, that he's functioning in this place as king and high priest of his people um, for us and for all humanity. So this is what I think Christologically is happening in this text. We're seeing the king of Israel anointed. 
as the kings of Israel have always been anointed with oil and perfume by people. And so this is, this is what, we, what we can see. We see it functioning in the life of Jesus as the confirmation of his kingly rule um, over Israel and extended beyond that over all the world. Now, is this the only time we see Jesus in kingly mode? No, it's not. He rides into Jerusalem. That's a kingly act. He says at the beginning of his ministry, I've been anointed to proclaim the, the good news. So it's not like it's the only thing, but functionally, I think symbolically, this is a major um, kingship thing. What I want to do is just make a few connections with the Old Testament and lead us through to think about what this might bring up for us today. Um, kingship and leadership in Israel has always been largely problematic. If you know the history of the scriptures, if you know the history of leadership within the Old Testament, you will know that it's just basically uh, a balls up. Um, <laughs> um, that's an AFL term, isn't it? <laughs> no, anyway. So, ball up, balls up, ball up. Yeah, I got it wrong. Um, it, very, very, very large overview. We have Moses, probably one of the key leaders, first leaders of Israel. He passes leadership to Joshua. After Joshua, we have the period of judges. That's a very messy time. In come the prophets and the priests. And then we hit when Israel asks for a king. And then we come into the time of the kings. And so I just want to read to you from 1 Samuel chapter 8, um, the story of how God's people asked for, the, for a king and how God responds to that request. So we're in the time of, of Samuel, who is the priest in Israel. When Samuel grew old, he passed on the leadership to his sons, which just seems to be a common human thing. Um, but his sons did not follow in Samuel's ways and in the ways of God. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel and said to him, you are old and your sons do not follow in your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us like all the other nations have. They just wanted to be like all the other nations. Give us a king. Everyone else has a king. We want a king. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord and the Lord said to him, listen to all the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. As they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now listen to them. But warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, this is what the king who will reign over you will claim as his rights. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses and they will run in front of his chariots. Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and others to plough his ground and reap his harvest and still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and he will give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants. Your male and female servants and the best of your cattle and donkeys he will take for his own use." He will take a tenth of your flocks and you and yourselves will become his slaves. 
When that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. When Samuel heard all the people said, he repeated it before the Lord. The Lord answered, listen to them and give them a king. And so right from the outset, the idea of kingship in Israel, kingship over God's people, was always a really problematic thing. God knows that leadership does not sit well with individual humans. And that humans, when given power, tend to use that power to lord it over others, to take from others, to conscript others into that own leader's purposes and generally do harm. And so this, you see this unfolding as you read the Old Testament. Samuel anoints Saul. Saul goes bad pretty quick. Um, Samuel anoints David. David waits a while, David becomes king, David goes bad pretty quick, David makes a whole lot of mess, a whole lot of people try to take the throne, Solomon ends up being king, he does okay for a while, chooses a thousand women to be, like that's problematic and then it just basically goes up and down from there. Um, and really what we see in the scriptures is this, is this idea that God always longed to be king over his people. God was the one that longed to lead his people. That we, his people, would look to God for our kingship, for our headship, for our leadership. But all too often we haven't wanted God to be our king. We've wanted people to rule over us. An easier way um, than, than what, we were, what we were given. Um, and this is not just unique to Israel's history, not just unique to the history of scripture, but I think if we would track leadership throughout all of human history, the balance would end up on the side of, like there are, there's a lot of problematic stuff. I mean, we don't need to look very far in our own day and age to see the highly problematic, highly destructive, highly life taking effects of toxic leadership, whether we're looking to what Russia's doing in Ukraine, towards other things that go on when leaders um, rule over people in ways that are problematic. I want to read to you a, a wonderful little parable that comes earlier in our scriptures, again about the same thing. It's about anointing, it's about kingship, Um, And it comes from the book of Judges, and it's Judges chapter 9, verses 8 to 15. And again, it comes at a time when, I'm not not even going to give it context, I'm just going to read you the story. This is a, a, a wonderful parable. One day, the trees went out to anoint a king for themselves. They said to the olive tree, be our king. But the olive tree answered, Should I give up my oil, by which both gods and humans are honoured, to hold sway over the trees? Next the trees said to the fig tree, Come and be our king. But the fig tree replied, Should I give up my fruit, so good and sweet, to hold sway over the trees? Then the trees said to the vine, come and be our king. But the vine answered, should I give up my wine, 
which cheers both gods and humans to hold sway over the trees. Finally, all the trees said to the thorn bush, come and be our king. The thorn bush said to the trees, if you really want to anoint me king over you, come and take refuge in my shade. But if not, then let fire come out of the thorn bush and consume the cedars of Lebanon. So incredible little story about kingship, about leadership from our scriptures. The essence is that none of the trees wanted to give up part of themselves in order to lead or in order to rule. They wanted to retain what they wanted. So they refused to, to, to give things up in order to rule. And so they go to the worst possible option, the thorn bush, and end up with what is essentially a lose-lose dynamic. Because the thorn bush says to them, sure, if you want me to be king, come and take refuge in my shade. Now, what do you think happens if you take refuge in the shade of a thorn bush? You're going to get pricked pretty badly. So the option is, come and be close enough to me that my thorns are going to scratch and destroy you. Or if you don't do that, fire will come out of me and I'll destroy the strongest and most mighty mightiest trees among you. So the trees end up in a lose-lose scenario. Um, And I can't help but think that that's just the way that it often is with kingship, with leadership, with rulership, with power when we look at humanity. Um, In thousands and thousands of ways over history, humanity has made peace with the thorn bush and has ended up being pricked and scratched and destroyed by those who have wanted to rule. So we have all of this present, and, and I stand, what are you, what are you saying? You, you, do, <laughs> you do, you do, um, unfortunately. So we take all of this, this is all the undergirding of Jesus. This is his story, these are his people, this is, this is his lineage, lineage. And Jesus comes among his own people, an Israelite among Israelites, and he's anointed king over them. But he is not the thorn bush, and he is not the king that they wanted, nor is it the king they expected, but he's absolutely the king that they need. Jesus comes among us as the true king. He comes among us as the one who is actually willing to give up himself in order to to rule and to reign. And that's what we have in Philippians 2. When we look at that beautiful Christ hymn in Philippians 2, we essentially have Jesus answering in the place of the fig tree, the olive tree and the vine and saying, I will give up my essence in order to be your king. This is how Paul writes it, that Jesus Christ, who in being very nat- who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage or something to be held onto, something to be grasped. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, 
being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus is the king from the parable of the trees that is the one who's willing to give up his essence in order to be good, in order to rule the way that God always intended a ruler to be. He's not the thorn bush. He's, he's the good king. But Jesus is, is the king that almost nobody recognised. He was a king that had no palace but cho- chose to have no place to lay his head. He was the king who chose to spend time with outcasts the losers and the lonely and the lost and the sick instead of the important people. He wasn't like, um, what's the word when you, you know, he wasn't a networker. He didn't network. He was terrible. He was like the opposite of networking. He listened more often to people than just told people what to do. He healed people and gave himself away instead of taking and using people for himself. He didn't come to rule over us but he came to set us free from the tyranny of everyone and everything that dominates and oppresses us and the final thing he came to defeat the final ruler he came to defeat was death and so three days before his impending death this woman who can see what nobody else can see comes and pours perfume all over his head and anoints him king over Israel. Not a king who comes to rule, but a king who came to die in order to set us free from the tyranny of death. And so we have this picture in Mark 14 as we look Christologically at this text that that's what's going on, that he's being anointed. There's an anointing going on that was always present in the lives of the kings of Israel. They were always anointed by having the oil run all over them. And this happens to Jesus to set him apart, to recognize him as king. But it wasn't his followers that could see this. Usually the high priest or a prophet would be the one that would anoint the king of Israel. Sometimes just ordinary people would um, anoint a king because they just wanted a different dude to rule. But none of that happens to Jesus. The, the prophets of his day don't recognize him. The priests of his day don't recognize him. His own followers and disciples don't recognize him. It's an unnamed woman who can see what nobody else can see, who recognizes Jesus as king and anoints him. She doesn't anoint him at the start of all his earthly popularity, but he but for the authority he's going to gain from dying. And while this is all going on, while she's anointing him, and it's this kingly kind of imagery that's happening at at an average meal table, the disciples are just squabbling over financial issues. (laughs) It's quite comical when you look at it like that, that we have this gorgeous kingly act happening in the midst of a of a bickering bunch of men who don't know what's going on and she sees through it all and so I think if we if we have the eyes to see and the ears to hear and the understanding of reading this passage of scripture from a through that Christological lens of saying what does this passage tell us about the Christ this passage is telling us that the Christ is the king 
He is the king of all kings, but he is not a king that we recognize, nor is he a king that we expect. He's not a thorn bush, but he's the one willing to give up his very life, even unto death, to serve us, to lay his life down for us. He's the king that we don't know that we need. And I would say that we're so used to pricks from the thorn bushes that we don't always recognize true authority when it comes. I think we've been so patterned to think about power in a certain way, to think about leadership in a certain way, to think about rulership in a certain way, that when God in flesh comes and shows us what that really looks like, we don't recognize it for what it is. So often I wonder, I think about my own life and I think, yeah, I'm, I'm often wanting the God who's going to come through and like conquer and tell me what to do and the God I can get on board with and, you know, the God who's going to like do all the fancy things. And Jesus comes as the one who washes my feet and says, I will be with you even unto the ends of the earth. Will you have me as your king? And I know there's been times that I have said yes to that and times when I've said, hmm, I think I'd rather someone a little more sexy than that. Because <laughs> Jesus comes to us as the self-giving, radically forgiving, co-suffering king. The king we need, not always the king we think we need. So this is us having a look at this passage from a Christological lens. And I've said a lot tonight and we're coming to the end I want us to wind up but just to finish up um, I thought I'd offer these questions up for reflection and we might just take a few a minute or two not too long because I do want to finish up just to think about these things like how can we if thinking about this passage Christologically how can it just come a little bit closer to our own lives to our own hearts and to our own bodies so these are some questions that I thought might kind of come out of us reading this passage looking at Christ number one what's pricking you right now um, what has power over you that is actually really doing you harm because I would say that there's a lot of things that function in our lives that have authority over us or that we give authority to but they're thorn bushes that actually harm us, even as we give ourselves over to them. So for you, what's pricking you right now? Second thought was, if you are in any form of leadership, um, and that would really just include any of us that are parents in the room, because parenting is a form of, of leadership in a way, are you aware of your thorns? Because we all have them. And for those of us in leadership, I think the greatest damage is done when we're unaware of the ways in which we harm other people. No human being can be perfect. No human being needs to be. And we're all thorn bushes in a way. But it just helps to know where your thorny bits are. Um, and the... Oh yeah, I had another question. Are you unlearning and relearning anything about the nature of power and God? And how is Jesus informing this? And the last question, which I think touches to the heart of some of the things that many of us have experienced, both inside and outside of the church, but if you've been harmed by worldly leaders or harmed by any leader, harmed by a parent, harmed by a teacher, harmed by a church leader, harmed by a thorn bush, where is God inviting you 
towards the healing and restoring presence of Jesus, who might come as the good king who gives up himself in order to heal you from the others who've harmed. So what we might do is I might just pray and then maybe we'll just take the next couple of minutes just to chat to one another, um, pick, pick a question you'd like to answer or just share together something that jumps out at you and let's just finish our time together by, by helping ourselves flesh out a little bit about what we've heard tonight. But let's pray. Jesus, as I've looked at you this week and over the weeks this month, as I've thought about you, the King, as I've looked at this passage as the moment in which you got to experience the oil of anointing flowing over your head, down your shoulders, down your body, to your feet, I recognize that you are the king, that you are the rightful king of all humanity because you willingly gave up your very self in order to serve. Jesus, I thank you that you lead us in good and healthy ways. Jesus, I thank you that you're not a thorn bush, that the closer we get to you, we don't experience pain or damage, but we actually experience healing and wholeness. Where that's not our experience, Jesus, would you help us, show us who you really are. Jesus, help us to see you in all your goodness. Help us to know that you lead us and you serve us in ways that we can't imagine, but ways that we need. And together as a, a small group of people seeking to follow you, Jesus, we say to you tonight, we want you to be our king. Would you lead us? Would you show us the way? Would you show us how to live? Would you show us how to be human? Would you hold us through all that we experience? And we thank you for your ongoing presence here in this world. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you want to check out more about Central, visit us at centralchurch.org.au. Music by Chris D'Souza, a beloved member of Central. <laughs>